Have you ever been to a big demonstration and got swept away in the emotion of it? Had the tide of humanity, its power and energy, infect every measure of your being? Have you found yourself questioning everything and then concluding, I know, I'm going to stop doing my day job and become an all-in movement supporter? Well, if you have, you are just like our guest today. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Anthony Dupran. Anthony Dupran is the journalist equivalent of a black block Hong Kong brave high school student. By day, he wears a suit and tie and works in the financial district. But under the cover of night, he takes out a phone or computer, his equivalent of a helmet, mask and black clothes, and writes about the Hong Kong Revolution. Anthony wrote the best-selling book, City of Protest, a book that explains the history of protest movements in Hong Kong. And get this, he did this before 2019. This man wrote about Hong Kong protests before they were cool and the stuff of daily international news bulletins. So, let's go. Hi, I'm Amanda Tatzel. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can also connect with us. You can sign up to our Twitter feed at Changemakers99, find us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast or join our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So, Anthony, we're in a program called Changemakers, and you're a corporate finance lawyer based in Hong Kong. And, you know, in some ways for us, it's a curious CV for a spot on the show. Please, you know, why don't you tell us in your own words what makes what you do, what makes you a changemaker? Well, I've lived in Hong Kong and China uh, for over 20 years, and a lot of my time I've spent here watching the growing protest movements here in Hong Kong in particular, um, writing about them, analysing them, uh, being on the ground, observing them, uh, and trying to understand how they shape and change society here in Hong Kong and, and the implications that has for really China and the rest of the world as well. And so it's it's that sort of analytical observational capacity that is the thing that you believe that you're particularly bringing to the the world of change. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think for what I do, it is important to maintain at least some level of objectivity, whether as a, as an analyst or a researcher or a, or a reporter. Now, obviously, you know, my sympathies, where my sympathies lie will become pretty obvious pretty quickly by reading what I write. But I do try to maintain that level of objectivity that, that means that my writing retains credibility and, do, and doesn't move into, into you know, full-throated activism. So in, in many ways, by being able to step back the, the fact that you can step back allows you to be able to offer something distinctive to the protest space. So I, I wrote a book about the, the history of protest in Hong Kong, and I've written a lot about the ongoing protest movement you know, here over the last few months and, and, and what's been happening here over the last few years. And I think people value what I write because it, it is, you know, fairly objective and analytical and, and, and isn't, isn't trying to push a particular political viewpoint. The question that all this begs for me is how did a corporate finance lawyer come to be 
um, one of the leading observers of uh, of the Hong Kong protest movement. It's just not a, a you know a well worn path, Anthony. <laughs> so, and I'm keen to go right back. Yeah, no, and you're right. It does go a long way back. Um, you know, really all the way back to, to to university days, if not earlier, and really to to the fact that I'm really somewhat of a, a reluctant lawyer and probably always actually wanted to be a journalist. To, and to give sort of the full background, I originally um, I'm from Melbourne originally and grew up and went to school in in Melbourne and and to Melbourne University. And starting in high school, I started studying Chinese. Uh, my high school was one of the few at the time that, that at which um, that offered Chinese back in the back in the day and. and in fact, Chinese was compulsory in year seven. And then after that, we all had to keep doing at least one foreign language. So I started studying Chinese then and went on a school trip to, to China in, in year 11 and just discovered, uh, firstly, how you know exciting and, and what an interesting place China was, and also the excitement of, of being able to speak a foreign language and communicate in a foreign language. So when I went on to university, I kept studying Chinese as well as as law in a in an arts law double degree at Melbourne University, and Melbourne Uni had a, and still has an exchange relationship with Beijing University in in Beijing, and so I went for uh, studies for two years in Beijing on exchange from Melbourne Uni and did a, a year of Chinese language and and a year of of Chinese law in in the law faculty in Beijing. But through all all this time, I was sort of you know to be honest ambivalent about whether I would go on and be a lawyer or not after university because the other thing I'd been pursuing at the same time was was writing and journalism. I was the, the music editor of Farago in my first year at uni, the, the, the Melbourne Uni student paper. I um, did you know, a fair bit of, of writing through uni as well. And, and I was sort of tossing up back and forth. Would I, after uni, go on to be a lawyer or would I perhaps try and become a, a foreign correspondent or something like that? But what I discovered in, in the, the couple of years that I was studying and living in Beijing was that you know, working as a lawyer would be a really interesting way to see and be involved in all the changes that were happening in China. And and I guess the, the distinction I made at the time was that rather than just being an observer and a reporter on it, to actually be a participant, um, working with uh, the foreign companies that were going into China and starting to do business there and working with the Chinese companies as they were reforming themselves and, and sort of, you know, moving from being state, you know, sort of departments of the government into proper commercial enterprises and then going out to the, to the broader world and doing business abroad. And it's all the changes that were going on at the time in China as the, the laws were changing and the economy was opening up and, and culturally it was changing as well. And I just thought, well, this is going to be a, an exciting way to be involved in all of that. So I, I guess the way it worked out for me was that it wasn't that I, I guess put it this way, it wasn't that I studied Chinese, so I thought that would help me get a really good legal job, but mm. rather that I wanted to do something in China using my Chinese language skills, and law turned out to be a, a good way of doing that. And so over the years, you know, alongside my legal career, I, I'd always done a little bit of, of, of writing and, and translating and, and reporting on various things. But that obviously took a back seat in the years when my legal career was extremely busy. But then what really I think it wouldn't be an understatement to say changed my life was the umbrella movement here in 2014. At the time, I'd already been working as a lawyer for about 15 years at that point. And I was living here in Hong Kong, just a few blocks away from where the umbrella movement protests occurred and where the occupation occurred. And so I was there on the first day when, when, when the tear gas was fired almost five years ago to the day and followed those protests all the way through and was was writing about them and photographing and reporting them and those the the the, the protests in 2014 and my experience witnessing them and writing about them 
both, I think, changed my relationship with the city, uh, changed the way I feel about Hong Kong, and also, I think, you know, changed or made me realize what my priorities were in terms of what I wanted to do with my time and, and, and how I wanted to sort of, I guess, you know, contribute to the world. And that sort of began a slow transition in which I began doing less and less legal work and more and more of, of the writing and reporting and, and, and thinking about protest and, and social change in Hong Kong. So, so that I've now reached the point some five years later where I work only part-time as a lawyer and the rest of the time I'm spending uh, on writing and thinking and talking about uh, protest and social change. How extraordinary. I want to just dig in a little bit to what you said in terms of um, you know, the, the, the umbrella movement was such a transformative experience. Tell us a bit more about that. What what was it that you saw, witnessed, experienced, felt in that 79-day protest around universal suffrage for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the, what the umbrella movement was? Hong Kong is, on the one hand, a very easy city to to live in as as a as a as an expatriate or, or, or as a visitor, it's it's a very efficient city. Everything's set up so that it's very easy to, to to land here. You know, unpack your suitcase. You know, get to work, get a place to live, and and there's a big sort of expatriate community that you can fit into and socialize with. So it's it's a very easy place for people from outside Hong Kong to come here and, and set up and start a life. But it's a very difficult place to fully access. The local community and feel very much at home in, um, especially if you don't speak Cantonese, a local language, which unfortunately I, I, I don't speak well. I speak a little Cantonese. I speak fluent Mandarin, the, the language spoken on, on the mainland. So it, it's 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 not necessarily the most accessible place to to really feel as a home. And that's why you often find um, expatriates who are living here in Hong Kong, who've been here for you know, 20, 30, 40 years, who still refer to Australia or the UK or, or, or wherever as home and think of Hong Kong as just a, a temporary, you know, temporary spot, even though they've often spent you know, most of their adult lives here. And I think I, you know, for the first you know, part of my life living here in Hong Kong, had fallen into that, that similar trap of thinking of Hong Kong as just a, a temporary place. But I'd, I'd sort of also felt that way, that it was difficult to feel at home in Hong Kong. But during those 79 days of the Umbrella Movement occupation, where I was spending every day down, you know, in among the occupied areas down, I, I didn't sleep on the street, I didn't need to, luckily, because I was living in an apartment literally two blocks away from where it was all happening. So I had the, the comfort of going home to a, a hot shower and a, and, a, and a clean bed at night. But being down there every day, talking to the protesters, being at the front lines with them, um, listening to the, the speeches, taking part in all the, the cultural activities that were happening on the sidelines of those occupied sites, and really engaging in conversations with with people in Hong Kong, really in a way that I hadn't done before. Of course, I always you know, talked to, to colleagues and had friends and, and, and socialized in, in those sort of professional and social settings. But to really have these conversations with people about their aspirations and their hopes and their views of their city and their their thoughts of, of the future and the relationship they felt between themselves and their city. And to, to have those conversations and, and to feel a part of it really, you know, for the first time made me feel at home in Hong Kong. It really just fundamentally changed the way I feel about the city and made it, I think, made me finally make that switch from being just a, a temporary, you know, passing through resident to being someone who, who really felt at home here and who took on, you know, the, the issues as being, you know, 
issues that were my own issues and not just things of a, a local population that I was disconnected from. Yeah, wow. Was going to a protest something that you'd done before? Yeah, I had. I'd been to many protests over the years. I'd been to the first lawyers' silent march back in 1999, which was sort of the first really notable post-handover protest when the, the legal community here was protesting Beijing, stepping in and, and reinterpreting a provision of the constitution here, the basic law. And there was a, a lawyers' silent march then, um, of which there have been several since, but that was an extremely powerful moment. I attended the, the 2003 uh, anti-Article 23 marches, which, which were marches sort of similar to the ones we've had this year, a very large sort of half a million people marching against a, an unpopular law. And, and I'd been to yeah, many other protests over the years, but always with a level of, of, of disconnection, I think, as, a, as, a, as, as an interested observer, a curious onlooker, even though I'd been, you know, sort of marching in amongst the crowd. So, uh, yeah, I had always had an interest in and followed the social movements here in Hong Kong, but there's something about the umbrella movement that that made it made it different. Mm. Well, from what I'm hearing, it was the ability, the fact that people, you know, and we can talk about the limits of occupations as well and the power of being water as an alternative, but the fact that people were actually physically in a, in, a, in the streets for such a long period of time allowed for community to develop. Yeah, absolutely. The, the occupied areas, and in particular the Admiralty Occupy area, was a very large, physically a very large space. It became extremely lived in. You know, all the tents were set up, people were sleeping there you know, for almost three months. And this real utopian community built up around it. So you had you know, supply stations providing everything from food and drinks to sort of camping equipment and, and first aid supplies. You had the, the main stage where every day there would be different activities, speakers, uh, performances, uh, sometimes movie screenings. You had different cultural activities and cultural events taking place around the site, whether that was someone having a, you know, a leatherworking workshop, um, people doing portrait sketching, uh, people doing little dance performances or, or little you know, buskers playing music. Um, and, and it really became this, this, this community, this mini city within a city, and, and a very utopian and colourful and creative and inspiring community. And, and it was, I, I've, I've called it elsewhere, sort of this site of enchantment. You'd, you'd step into the space. It was immediately visually distinct with all these coloured tents and all the posters and flyers and banners. And, you know, it was a, a really visually engaging, exciting site to be in. There were no cars and no traffic. So the air was clean and there was no sound, you know, no unpleasant sounds of sort of, you know, traffic or anything like that. It was the sounds of people talking, sometimes people singing or people chanting slogans. But it was just this really magical space that it was transformative to, to step inside. Mm. And so, and that's, um, yeah, sorry. And I was just going to say, and that's what we don't get with a bee water protest because it's never in one location for very long. It doesn't create these sort of unique physical spaces um, on an ongoing basis that the spaces sort of pop up and there's a, a contested site, but then the, the protest ends and, and they, they are being, being water and, and move on. So you don't get that same site of enchantment here. I think that's a really interesting point about the trade-offs in the two different organising styles. Like, you know, with the, the umbrella, the fix the fixed nature creates the capacity for connection, community, for hope, creativity, you know, enchantment. I love the idea that it was a space of enchantment. But it also is rigid. It has to feed itself. It gets exhausting. People have to uh, make decisions. They're often required to do so by consensus. Consensus is impossible at the best of times, especially when people don't trust each other. You know, like, so there's all these sort of negatives that come from a, a positive space too. And then 
water is fluid, but but it's harder for people's relationships to truly congeal and deepen, and so it has its own its own challenges. You know, um, can make simple decisions about movement, but more complex decisions maybe are harder. So without the connection. Absolutely. So on the one hand, I think, you know, the being water is what has enabled this protest to be so enduring and to go on for so long when the only commitment you demand of people is for them to come out, you know, once a weekend and attend a protest. That's very easy for people to do, you know, week after week. In fact, it almost becomes, as as one friend was saying to me, it's, it's great. We don't have to make plans with our friends anymore. We know exactly what we're going to be doing. We all just go to the protest every Sunday. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, that it, it's it's easy to keep that up for and when people ask how long will these protests go on for well you know they could go on indefinitely um, but you know th- and so that's different to the umbrella movement where it really did need commitment of bodies on the ground you know sleeping on the concrete um, you know night after night after night um, and so yeah that, that's a it's a very clear strength of the be water movement but as you say you're quite rightly that it's difficult to have a a, a focal point for people to continue to 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 gather around and to to create a to create really a focal point for the movement in terms of what they're trying to achieve and how they're trying to achieve it. It's easy for protests to stop something. You know, if you wanted to stop, as we, in this case, the extradition bill, or to stop you know, a few years earlier, you know, Joshua Wong with the, the, the anti-national education curriculum. If you have enough bodies on the street being disruptive enough, you can stop something. But to try and create something new is much more challenging. And that's what the umbrella movement struggled and ultimately failed to do. They were trying to create a new model for universal suffrage. Um, and again, here with this protest movement, they are again wanting that, that, that model of universal suffrage and trying to do that with a be water strategy, I think is proving to be very challenging. Mm-hmm. I want to just ask you just one more uh, question about that sort of your journey into this role that you now perform, which is as a, as a leading commentator and um, sort of semi-participant, you know, engaged participant in the movement. Tell me the journey, the emotional and intellectual journey you went on from, you know, th- that day in December when the streets were cleared to um, to to now, look. I think Umbrella Movement Hong Kong and, and post Umbrella Movement Hong Kong, uh, notwithstanding the the political difficulties and the the challenges to uh, you know the challenges from the government to rights and freedoms here in Hong Kong, have nevertheless been the the, the most interesting time I've ever had in Hong Kong since first coming here. 20 years ago. You know, Hong Kong has become a contested space and a contested space is always a more interesting space. And the amount of uh, cultural creation that the umbrella movement engendered both during the movement and afterwards in terms of you think about the artwork that's been inspired by the umbrella movement and subsequent political developments, the, the documentary filmmaking, the, the post-umbrella movement era also inspired a whole range of uh, grassroots community groups which popped up all around different local neighborhoods, inspired by the spirit of the umbrella movement and looking to affect change at the grassroots level in their own neighborhoods. And so that's been a really interesting development. And of course, the, the, the continued political engagement of the Hong Kong people. And from what I've seen, the last five years have been the most politically engaged that I've seen Hong Kong um, since the first coming here. And so it's just been an incredibly interesting place to be. I first came to Hong Kong in 1999. I was resident in Beijing from 2004 to 2010, again, when I, when I was working. When I was at university, there was in the mid-90s. But when I left Hong, Beijing at the end of 2010 to come back to Hong Kong, it was somewhat reluctantly. I'd just been through a, a really interesting 
interesting time in Beijing. The lead up to the 2008 Olympics and, and the couple of years after that was a really dynamic and exciting time to be in Beijing. The city was changing. There were a lot of a lot of cultural activities going on. The arts community there was really flourishing. And Hong Kong at the time seemed a fairly drab, you know, commercial, uninteresting place. But sort of because of, of work reasons, I ended up relocating back here. But what happened in the subsequent years, you know, really sort of flipped the positions. We saw Beijing and, and the mainland generally becoming um, much less interesting under you know, Xi Jinping's rule. There's been increasing crackdowns on all sorts of aspects of civil society that mean that the, the arts and the culture in, in Beijing are much less vibrant than they were. Uh, for me, I think a real turning point was the detention of Ai Weiwei in 2011, which really put the scare into, I think, the entire artistic community in, in, in Beijing and China more widely. And, and that sort of put a halt to many of the more interesting cultural things that have been happening. And as you know, Beijing declined as an interesting place to be. Um, Hong Kong got more and more interesting, and now they've now they've sort of swapped positions. and And Hong Kong is sort of this vibrant uh, cultural and and activist space that it, that it wasn't some ten years ago. So th that's sort of what's been inspiring me over the last five years, and which has inspired my journey to to research and 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 write about everything that's been happening here, and, and to continue trying to understand that and, and interpret that for not just people here in Hong Kong, but for the world at large. And it, it, like, and when I hear you talk with such animation about this sort of journey you've been on, how has it made you a different person? Yeah, it's a really difficult question to answer. I've always been really interested in in, in culture and the arts and and in writing and all those things. And I always, you know, pursued those aspects of my passion, I guess, of my personality to the best that I could in the, in, in the margins of my main career, which was which was being a lawyer. But I think what the umbrella movement and and my experience going through that and the subsequent years did were to give me the courage to to really pursue those and to stop worrying about what I you know, should be doing or what what sort of perhaps what you know society or other con, you know convention you know suggested that I should be doing and to 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 really follow follow my passions I guess to follow my heart and so it really you know, gave me the inspiration you know seeing these young people you know facing off against the police even back in the umbrella movement and and, and out there passionately fighting for what they believe in gave me the courage to to pursue what what I believed in as well and I think that's what enabled me to to make that switch in my mind um, and to, to sort of start pursuing these things, you know, much more seriously and, and ultimately, you know, to lead me to the point that I'm at now. I think many people sit in traditional workplaces and with conventions and a bit scared about doing that kind of thing. And so it's like in a way you could be a you're like a role model for other people. Yeah, look, and, and, I'll be, and I'll be the first to admit that obviously I've been incredibly fortunate to have had the, the opportunities that I've had you know, professionally to have had the, the education and career that I did that, you know, you know, to be honest, probably put me in a position to be able to do it when many other people don't have that choice available to them. But at the same time, when I sort of left my full-time job and sort of transitioned into this this role I'm in now, which is sort of part-time, uh, you know, only, only part-time work and, and part-time doing the writing and other things. And when I, when I sort of left that, uh, you know, I... I I was a you know a, a partner at a law firm and sort of quit quit the partnership and quit being you know quit that you know, ended that that portion of my life, and at the time a, a lot of colleagues sort of said to me, "Wow, it's you know it's 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 amazing what you're doing. I wish that I could do that." And I sort of my which my response was, "Well, you know you can. You know no one's chaining you to your desk. Um, 
you know, you can do it. You just have to decide to do it. Um, so, mm. uh, but it's funny that people somehow feel that, you know, even people who absolutely could do it and the option is open to them somehow feel constrained that something that they just couldn't do when, when really anyone can do it. Mm. Yeah. But it's courage too, you know, facing your fear and that sort of thing. But the fact that people do it means, uh, gives example to others. I think that that's what's really important. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to move to sort of a couple, some substantive discussion about uh, about what's going on in Hong Kong now because you are in the thick of it. I guess most broadly, you know, I, I want to ask you a reflective question, you know, and when this interview was recorded, it was still in the middle of what is now three months' worth of protest, so we don't know where it's going to go. But from from this period, this three months of particularly strong weekend protest, what have you what have you learned? Like, you know, what are the takeaway, the big takeaway lessons about the art of protest from the city of protest, from the author of the city of protest? Yes. Um, I, I think the first the first thing that, that I've, I've learned above all else is that my capacity to be surprised. You know, every week we kind of wonder, oh, will will this be the week when you know, the protests lose momentum? Will this be the week when the protesters lose the broader community support? You know, is this sort of, you know, are we heading into the end? Um, and every weekend I'm surprised. I'm surprised by the resilience of the protesters. I'm surprised by the solidarity the rest of the community have shown with them. And I'm surprised by the creativity with which they continue to carry out this protest movement. So yeah, even a sort of, you know, uh, even though I think of myself as a, you know, fairly uh, experienced observer of, of Hong Kong protest, I'm still you know, constantly surprised by the way this movement has continued to unfold. But some of the other things I think have been really notable have been just that level of of creativity. They are constantly innovating new ideas, new protest tactics, new ways, not just in terms of you know engaging on the ground and physically and with the with the city space, but engaging um, in the virtual space, engaging in in the the, the kind of public relations uh, aspects of their protest and the community engagement. Um, uh, there have been some just as we speak. There have been some protests in Indonesia the last couple of days as well, and I've noticed just through Twitter some attention from people in Indonesia on what's been happening in Hong Kong. And I, a, a great comment um, that someone has uh, again made in, in my Twitter feed today. That why in, in response to the in, in response to the observation that people in Indonesia seem to be paying a lot of attention to the protest tactics in Hong Kong, the response came that's because Hong Kong is the Silicon Valley of protest, which I think is a <laughs> fabulous way to describe it, and really. Does does describe it pretty well. Um, but I think there are so many little things that they've done, whether it's, you know, the crowdsourced advertising, the various online memes, um, taking inspiration from other international protests, such as the Hong Kong Way we held here a few weeks ago that was inspired by the Baltic Way, where people formed a human chain stretching all the way across Hong Kong. This constant innovation and the way it happens, as we've said, without leadership, just sort of iteratively online. Someone will come up with an idea, they'll discuss it, it will it will gain some momentum, others will discuss it in online groups and chat groups, and 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 the idea is floated out there. And there's and there's also a huge degree of courage in the way that they float these ideas. Um, people put out uh, you know, calls for certain protest actions online and, and then graphic designers will rapidly create flyers and sort of online memes and circulate them to promote it. And it, it really takes a lot of courage to stick your neck out and say, we're going to do this thing. Because it, it's sort of the equivalent of of you know putting out you know say invitations to a party when you don't know whether anyone's going to turn up or not. And it turned out to be this incredible 
huge emotionally moving moment that that, that covered the entirety of Hong Kong in, in its population, you know, linking hands um, in a, in an expression of community and solidarity. So the, the, just the creativity and, and the courage with which they propose and then sort of execute these these protest tactics have been um, really remarkable to see. Um, mm. And I think what the other thing that's been interesting, at least in the Hong Kong context, has been the way this protest has built on the lessons of all the previous protests. And that's been something that's been interesting to observe across Hong Kong protests over the years, that each protest movement seems to take the lessons of the previous movement and build upon them. So we had, of course, the first big march in 2003, in 2005, we had a um, WTO ministerial conference here in Hong Kong, and that attracted a number of activists from around the world, in particular, a large number of South Korean farmers who came here to protest uh, you know, WTO abolition of farming subsidies and those sorts of things. The, the South Korean farmers were extremely organized and extremely confrontational with police, extremely activist, something that protesters in Hong Kong had never seen before and were really inspired by. And so the subsequent protests in Hong Kong after that took a lot of inspiration and lessons from the South Korean farmers when they when they visited here. And then so on through the subsequent protests, the National Education Movement, the Umbrella Movement have all fed their strategies and tactics through to the current protest movement. And so seeing that develop has also been another really interesting lesson that everyone here has been watching and learning and engaging and improving and iterating upon previous protests. Yeah, kind of like a Silicon Valley startup in the garage trying to improve their product. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so true. I'm interested in in sort of digging into some of the, just a couple of the uh, particular lessons that you drew out, because I think for people who, who don't speak Cantonese or, or, or can or can read Chinese, or how all the, is the digital tools work is a bit of a mystery. And I think what's important for people who are not from Hong Kong to understand is that they are a lot more sophisticated than just being on a WhatsApp group or Facebook Messenger. But what is interesting is the voting mechanisms mean that, I don't know, that this mobilised anonymous group of people, you start to be able to test energy online before you have to go to the street. Do you want to tell, tell people a little bit about how that energy online works? Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it, actually. Um, so the, the, the probably the two main ways that people are organising at the moment are through a, an online forum called LIHKG.com, which is sort of like a Hong Kong local lo-fi version of Reddit, where people can post things and then things are voted up and voted down on the posts. And then Telegram chat groups, which in particular have a polling function. So you can set up a poll and then people can vote on particular, you know, whatever questions you want to put into the poll. Um, but those two things have been used a, a great deal by the protesters to, as you say, to float ideas and then see how, what reaction they get from the community. So in the, the LIHKG forum, people will post suggestions for how they think that the next protest should be organized or where they should go or what they should do. And then people will upvote or up uh, downvote those posts and then comment, obviously, in the comments, and there'll be a, a lively discussion. And through sort of this process, the, the, the more popular actions will sort of float to the top, as it were, and will then gain traction and then word about those will, will be spread further among the online community. Um, and then similarly, in the Telegram chat group, people will set up a poll and then vote for various options under that poll uh, to decide what they're going to do. Sometimes that happens in terms of a, a bigger picture, planning a, a strategy of where a protest will will be organised and what will happen. And sometimes it can be very nitty-gritty on the ground. So I guess two immediate examples that, that spring to mind that I saw in terms 
terms of on-the-ground decision-making, back in June, the protesters were besieging the government headquarters, and uh, they'd surrounded the government headquarters for most of the day, and it was getting into the night, and the question was, well, what, what do we do? And there was Joshua Wong sort of on the front lines with a, with a megaphone, but uh, people on the ground weren't really paying too much attention to him, and, and they weren't certainly listening to whatever, whatever his idea was of whether they should stay or whether they should go. Um, instead, they were all looking at their mobile phones, and on their mobile phones in the Telegram chat group, people were voting, what should we do? Should we stay and keep up this, this, this occupation? Should we leave? Uh, and if so, when should we leave? Should we leave now? Should we leave at midnight or what have you? And through the voting on the groups, the, the decision was made that they were going to leave at 11 o'clock just before the last trains home. And um, indeed, that's what they did. So that was entirely sort of on the ground decision making affected you know, through uh, the online technology. In terms of a slightly bigger picture example, right now, there's a lot of discussion about what protest action will be taken next week. So next week, the 1st of October, as we speak now, is Chinese National Day. And there's a, certainly expectation there's going to be some kind of protest action on that day to, to mark that occasion. And so the question is, what will we do? And there have been a number of uh, polls being conducted at the moment discussing whether there should be just one big march on Hong Kong Island. Everyone should focus all their resources in creating you know, the biggest march possible, get another million people out onto the streets and, and grab the attention of the world. Or should we go out into different districts around Hong Kong and have simultaneous marches all over, all over Hong Kong? And then there's been some voting on those different options and people posting ideas back and forth. Um, on, you know, some people saying, for example, we should you know, concentrate on Hong Kong Island and really shake the world and, and, and terrify the Chinese government by our sheer weight of numbers. And other people countering, well, that's going to make us easy to be contained by the police. Um, the police might shut off the MTR and leave us all stuck on Hong Kong Island. We should. It's safer to do it in different districts all around town. Then we can't be shut down. And so these debates are going on right now as we speak. And, and who knows how it will end up um, in terms of what ultimately happens on, on the 1st of October. And perhaps people will, you know, listening to this later, will we'll know the answer to that. But that discussion is happening right now online on, on um, LIHKG and on Telegram to try and figure out what the consensus will be. And um, that, that process will un, un, un undergo that, that sort of decision making over the next few days. Yeah, wow. It is, it's so different to how pr protests have been traditionally organised in so many places. I mean, it's got similarities to some of the strategies that were used in Occupy in the US and M15 in um, Spain, but it, things of Hong Kong has just to totally taken it to a new, <laughs> to a new, a new place where everyone's keen to learn. I think. Yeah, and look, it's it's different to anything that's happened in Hong Kong before as well. You know, the umbrella movement was very much led from what was known as the main stage, uh, and which was where Joshua Wong and the other student leaders and 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 Benny Tai and and the Occupy Central leaders sort of held court and and announced what was going to be done, and, and the crowd would follow. I think people have learnt the lessons from that. Partly learnt the lessons in the sense that you know Joshua and Benny and many of the other leaders either went to jail or some are still sitting in jail as we speak, and so wanting to avoid having anyone put in that position. But also, I think a certain degree of a certain sense among the protest community that, well, we tried doing it your way. It didn't work. So we're taking back leadership and we're going to do it our way now, which I think is an, an interesting development as well. Yeah. So I want to just check in with you about thought. I'm not going to ask you the silly question of tell me what you think is going to happen because that's that's just uh, unnecessarily silly. But I am conscious that, you know, as a as a participatory observer and um, and, you know, as a as a keen person caring about what happens to Hong Kong, what do you think some of the big issues that the movement will have to grapple with um, over the next few months? 
I think that one interesting because uh, of a couple of interesting milestones we have coming up. Obviously, there's the first of October protest, and I think that the immediate energies right now are focused on making that um, as 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 big and as impactful as it can be. But as we move past the the crucial coming week, uh, the next thing coming up in Hong Kong is we have district council elections coming up here at the end of November, and they're sort of the equivalent of your local council elections. And uh, there is, I guess, a, 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 I think the protesters would need to think about how they can move, uh, how the protest is going to move from a purely protest movement, perhaps into a mode of of campaigning and electioneering in trying to, uh, you know, turn these protests into an energy that can get candidates that they support elected into office in these upcoming district council elections. And I think that would be um, for the protesters who, when you hear when you, you hear them speaking, you talk to them on the street, you, you hear them most commonly saying, we can't give up now with what the government's offered us, which is very little, because we've already put in so much energy and we can't walk away with nothing. Well, if they, you know, successfully campaign in this district council election campaign and get their candidates into office, that's certainly converting their protest energies into a very tangible political outcome um, and indeed converting you know, energy on the street into real political power. And so I think that's an important outcome that I think protesters will be aiming for and will be interesting to see if they're able to you know, marshal their energies and, and use all that creative energy that they have and that organising ability they have to get to that outcome. And then in another year's time from now, we have the much more important legislative council election. So that's the equivalent of Hong Kong's parliament. And so I think that you know this, this protest movement certainly has the energy to continue, not necessarily with you know, really tough clashes on the street every single weekend for the next year, but to continue to have that organizing energy and that power within it that it can you know, resurface you know, in, a, in a year's time, no matter what happens in the interim, for, for that election campaign. So I think that making the connection between activism and energy and power on the streets into real political capital, um, which through which they can then affect political change, will be one of the key things that, that, that the protest movement is going to be looking for forward to in the next in, in the coming months and, and year. Mm. And then just uh, just a couple more things that are on my mind about sort of future challenges. Uh, one is the I guess what, to what extent do you think in international support and intervention, like you know legislation in the US, the Hong Kong Act, or would you think that that could be helpful, useful, or or problematic for the movement? Look, it it, it goes both ways. To, to address the problematic side first, you know, one of the key narratives that Beijing has used to attack these protests is to say that it's all organised by foreign forces and it's foreign governments causing trouble in, in Hong Kong and causing trouble in China. Now, that that is patently false. And anyone walking down onto the streets, you, know, you can see immediately that, that, that that's nonsense. The foreign government attention, expressions of support from foreign governments, you know, may be seen to be counterproductive in, in the sense that it helps feed into Beijing's narrative that this is all, you know, foreign instigated. But I think that, you know, because that narrative is so lacking in evidence, is so patently false, I think that, that probably we, we, we need to be careful not to sort of overplay that concern. And I do think that international attention on the whole is more helpful than harmful. The reason is that, you know, Hong Kong is an international city and certainly the Hong Kong government and, and to a certain extent the Beijing government as well cares what the international community thinks of Hong Kong, cares about Hong Kong's international reputation, and Hong Kong's international reputation is what enables it to be the place that it is. So international focus, international attention, and international pressure on the Hong Kong and Beijing authorities to, to treat the Hong Kong issue with with care and, and to protect the rights and freedoms here, I think ultimately is helpful because 
they they care about what the world thinks is happening here. And the protesters are certainly aware of that, and they've used that really to their advantage. And look, um, I've got to say, I, this is another thing that surprised me. There have been a, a small number of the Hong Kong protesters who've come out week after week. And when I say a small number, I mean literally a dozen out of thousands, so maybe a 10 or 12 people out of thousands, have come out week after week waving the American flag, waving the stars and stripes. And they've come in for a lot of criticism from people who, uh, you know, who sort of said, look, you know, firstly, you're playing into this narrative, you know, you know you're, you're making it look like it's foreign instigated and, you know, you're promoting, you know, American imperialism and American intervention. And, and a lot of the rest of the protester community here sort of either disowned or, or criticized those, those, you know, stars and stripes waving protesters sort of say, what, what are you doing? But when you speak to them on the streets, they had a very deliberate strategy. They said, you know, we're, we're doing this because we're trying to get the attention of the U.S. and specifically to try and get the attention of Donald Trump. Now, people ridiculed that and said, "Look, you know, Trump doesn't care about what's going on in Hong Kong, and you know, you waving the stars and stripes is, you know, again causing more harm than good." And you know, don't be so silly. Yet, um, you know, as these negotiations for the the Hong Kong Human Rights Act in the U.S. have gone on, what happened over the last few days has been. On Fox and Friends, Marco Rubio is talking to the hosts on Fox and Friends, and the host of Fox and Friends specifically said, we've seen these Hong Kong protesters waving the American flag on the streets. What's our role and what's our sort of duty and obligation here? And everyone knows that Fox and Friends is, you know, pretty much Donald Trump's only connection to the outside world. And sure enough, you know, the last 24 hours, we've had Donald Trump speaking in the UN General Assembly and talking about Hong Kong. So, you know, who has the last laugh is there are these guys on the street waving the US flag um, who appear, you know, if, if you sort of, you know, draw that line of connection from waving the flag to Fox and Friends to Trump speaking out in favor of Hong Kong to have drawn some significant international attention to their cause. So, you know, sort of query their method, but the outcome seems to have been fairly positive. So, yeah, just to go back to the original question, um, yeah, certainly I think international attention helps, and the protesters have been very actively courting that, whether through waving the stars and stripes or through their crowdfunded advertising campaigns in international newspapers or just through the, the, the very careful way that they aim to cultivate and attract international media attention. So then just I want to just the final question on the actual protests. I just wanted to the other thing that people raise concern about or as observers often white people far 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 away from Hong Kong but still are people that people are aware of is the question of violence. And you know the movement the Be Water movement in standing defensive ready to hold the street I guess was one thing and you know, I've been on those protests. They were spectacular. You've been in all of them. I only got to go to one uh, and I was just blown away. But there is a tinge by now, you know, as the protests have gone on, you know, 100 days in, that there's a change in quality. There's Molotov cocktails. There's big fires. There seems, would appear to be more bricks being thrown. Apparently on, you know, on online, there's been much more debate and discussion about fighting back against police aggression. What's your thoughts about how the, this question of violence is emer likely to emerge or play out over the next period? Yeah, and it's certainly been an emerging issue, and it's been a, a, an escalating cycle over the last couple of months. So I think, as you rightly pointed out, at the, at the beginning, the, the protests were, were entirely peaceful on the protesters' side. We had um, the police early in the first weeks sort of using uh, – tear gas and rubber bullets, but the, the, the protests just sort of dispersed. So what we've seen over the, the months as the protest movement has unfolded is an increasing 
willingness to resort to violence on on both sides, on the police and the protesters, sort of in response to each other. So uh, if you think of it sort of as an unfolding you know, narrative, as it were. At first, the police used tear gas and, and rubber bullets to sort of uh, clear the crowds. So the protesters said, well, the police are going to do this. We need to be prepared. So they started wearing hard hats and, and gas masks and eye goggles to try and prevent the, the, the avoid the tear gas. And then the police increasingly started using you know, rubber bullets and sponge grenades and pepper bullets and, and, and batons. So the protesters said, well, we need to protect ourselves against this. So they started using shields and began to uh, throw bricks back at the police when the police were shooting them with rubber bullets and so on. And so then the police said, well, look, now the protesters are throwing bricks. We're going to have to start using uh, water cannons and, and, and more violent methods. And then the protesters in response have started using Molotov cocktails. So they were sort of seeing this upward spiral of violence where every time uh, a, a, a step by one side is then reacted to by the other side. And we sort of have this, you know, this, 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 this race upwards in terms of violence. Um, but nevertheless, what has happened so far is that both sides have fallen short of, thankfully, fallen short of using lethal force. The, the police have um, you know, only used so-called less lethal weapons. Of course, they caused plenty of harm and, and could indeed prove lethal. And surprisingly, they haven't so far. The protesters have been using you know, things like Molotov cocktails and, and catapults firing bricks, which you know, could indeed you know, also equally kill someone. But I think they've either, uh, I, I think to a certain extent, they haven't so far haven't been trying to do that. Um, so I think that's that's also helped to avoid, uh, unfortunately, incidents on both sides. But look, the violence is, is escalating. What has been interesting is the community response to that. And still, it seems, by and large, the community response has been to condemn the police for their level of violence, but to say in terms of protest of violence that while the people wouldn't necessarily do that themselves and don't necessarily agree with that, they understand and, 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 and sympathize with the anger and the frustration that is driving that violence on the protesters' side. And so they essentially forgive them for that. But I think that is in particular because the protesters' use of violence has been very disciplined. The protesters do direct their violence at police, but generally not at um, other civilians. I'll, I'll talk about the exceptions to that in a moment. And in terms of the property damage and violence against property, they've directed it only at uh, public facilities in a very targeted way. So they targeted it previously only at government facilities. Then after the MTR, the, the subway operator here, was seen as being complicit with the government and the police in terms of shutting down access to stations, stopping trains, transporting people to protests. And then in particular, their complicity in in, in covering up what's been a widespread conspiracy theory here over a, a police attack inside an MTR station that uh, people are asking questions about what actually happened there. And I think we won't open the can of worms of that. Just to suffice to say there's been a lot of controversy. As a result of that, people have begun targeting the MTR stations. And we've seen MTR stations extensively vandalized and, and, and once or twice people setting fires at MTR entrances. But private property remains undamaged. So, you know, you have, uh, you know, not a single shop window broken, not a single single example of looting. We had uh, one of Hong Kong's biggest pop stars, Aaron Kwok, drive his matte black Lamborghini through a crowd of protesters the other week, you know, completely unscathed, except that they bailed him up for pose, to pose for selfies next to his car. You know, <laughs> so the, the level of discipline has been really, I think, appreciated and recognized by the Hong Kong community. On the other hand, police have been firing tear gas indiscriminately in, in residential neighbors, affecting not just protesters, but, but passers-by, elderly, children, you know, 
know, and and seemingly without even to stop to apologize. And so that that, that that's sort of I think helped sort of sway the community opinion in, in favor of the protesters rather than the police. Now what we have seen on the protesters' side is a couple of examples where protesters have. Uh, exerted violence against non-police, always in circumstances where they either were responding to being attacked themselves or suspected that the person involved was some kind of undercover agent, undercover police officer, undercover mainland agent, or so on. And this has been fueled by the police indeed actually using undercover officers posing as protesters and then affecting very violent arrests on protesters. So that's sort of feeding the paranoia within the protester groups, which has then led to some ugly scenes where protesters have indeed beat people up who they uh, suspected of of being police or, or, or who engaged them in some way that they were unhappy with. And those have been um, very few incidents when you think about the months of protests that are literally, you know, you could count those number of incidents on, on one hand, but they have happened and they cause a great deal of soul searching afterwards. Um, uh, but so far, they haven't occurred on a scale that have led the protesters to, to again, lose broad public support. But I think that this, the, the violence is the real wild card here in the sense that you know, with every week that goes by and with every you know, day of violent clashes with this level of violence, you know, the, the risk of an accidental death happening on one side or the other you know, increases. And it is, it is astounding it hasn't happened so far. And, and Chief Executive Carrie Lam tried to make this point in a, in a, in a not very political way um, in a speech this week, which she said there have been no major fatalities, which sort of begs the question, what's a minor fatality? Um, but uh, <laughs> she, she sort of said, you know, thankfully there haven't been any fatalities. And, and I, I would agree with that sentiment that you know, it's, it's amazing there haven't been. And if there is, is, um, I can see that as being just a huge wild card in, in what happens to this protest movement. If the protesters you know, accidentally kill a police officer or, 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 heaven forbid, an innocent bystander, I think that would instantly cause the protesters to, to lose a great amount of public support. If, on the other hand, the police accidentally killed a protester or, a, or an innocent bystander, I think that would provoke an ex a huge and extremely angry reaction from the community that I really don't know how the government would deal with at that point, because that would be a, a, a really um, provocative outcome. Um, so we're all obviously hoping that doesn't happen and hoping that the violence can be continue to be contained in a way that it's largely theatrical. And that's something else that you sort of see on the streets in these protests week after week, that a lot of the violence is, is theatre. It's almost ballet in a way. And there are certain set steps that happen. So the protesters line up, the police line up, the protesters build their barricades. The protesters start to collect their, their, their bricks and begin to throw them from a fairly safe distance you know, towards the police. The police respond with tear gas. The protesters respond in, in turn. And this sort of back and forth, this sort of ballet, this dance unfolds. Um, but everyone seems to know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And as long as the violence is happening in this sort of theatrical setting, there is a sense that, you know, maybe it can continue to be contained and won't spiral any further out of control than, than, than what it has been so far. That is such a helpful description for, for people who are not in the city, I think. So thank you for, like, laying it out like that. That was just really interesting. So my final question is just this, right? So you're sitting in the middle of the city of protest and have been a an active observer and, you know, as an Australian and a local as well from Hong Kong, you obviously have the capacity to see how these lessons can be translatable to other places, right? I'm wondering, what is the one thing that strikes you as something that translates from this specific experience that, that people, changemakers from around the world, could take? Like, what's what's the one insight that, that they could take from what they've se you've seen in Hong Kong? Uh, I think probably the 
the best lesson would be to don't underestimate your local community. Don't underestimate the people. You know, people, going back to Umbrella Movement in particular, but even recently, um, people would sort of say, oh, Hong Kongers don't really care about politics or they care about making money and sort of a comfortable life and and young people don't care about politics, they just care about video games and, and so on and so forth. You know, but but again and again, and especially in the Umbrella Movement and even more so in these last couple of months, that has just been proved so completely wrong. And the level of engagement and the level of passion in the Hong Kong community, and in particular in Hong Kong's younger generation, has been you know, really awe-inspiring. And I think that I'm sure that's quite the same for communities around the world and for anyone who's looking to affect change in their own local community, not to underestimate your own community and don't underestimate your people and the level of engagement and the level of care they have. And all that they're waiting for is the right issue and the right inspiration to come along to, to, to motivate them to take action. Um, but I think that, that that power is latent within communities everywhere. And I think everyone cares about where they live and how it is governed and their rights and freedoms. Um, and no one cares just about money and video games. But, you know, it may look that way from an, an uninformed, dispassionate outsider. But I think just I think having the the, the inspiration and the courage to take action and, and, and to get, you know, the kind of results and the kind of response from the community that Hong Kong has had, I think is something that people should have the courage to do around the world. That's a great way to end. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Changemaking.